you turn to the book of Hosea. If you go to the middle of your Bible and you keep going to the right a little bit from center, you'll find Daniel. Then after Daniel, you'll find Hosea, if that's an easier way to find it. Hosea. A couple weeks ago, I was reading in the morning, reading in the book of Hosea, reading through it. And I came to chapter 4, where we're going today. And these words in chapter 4, that the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Now, I had heard a British preacher a year or two ago on update takes. Some of you know Lance Lambert or have heard of him, lives in Israel, a, a British fellow, very interesting to listen to. But he used the word controversy, and he called it controversy. And I remember listening to it, I thought, con what? Not knew what he was saying, but controversy. You could say it's controversy. I don't know how you would say that controversial, controversial. I went back to the English controversy and began thinking about from God's side. What do you suppose we do? How wrong do we do things or how indifferent do we as a church, how little interest do we have in assimilating what he is saying or put much regard to the word of God? Maybe we're just casual, indifferent, taken for granted and just taken for granted everybody's okay. And going about in our lives, living not in harmony with all of that. Would that be a cause for God to look at us and say, I'm having a problem with you? See, the word controversy has to do with strife and contention. And the idea of controversy is a quarrel or strife. And God is saying, look, I didn't call you to destroy you. And I'm going to do what I can to keep that from happening because of all the nations on the earth, I chose you. Now, you're not doing right. You're not doing well as a nation. And we're going to have to bring it down to the church today because that's what we are. That you could really do a lot better than you're doing. And the problem is you're really not trying. You're letting things slip. You're taking things for granted. You're not showing a lot of interest. There's not a lot of diligence. All of these are Bible words that we hear a lot. So God has a controversy. That's the title of the message today, God's Controversy. That's pretty easy if you can spell it. God's Controversy. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land or for us, God has a controversy with the modern church in the last days, with its people. The church is a building. The assembly is what's in the building, and that's what he has his problem with. Now, let me read the first two verses. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of, uh, shall be, uh, excuse me, of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because... Oh, now we know what it is because there's three things here. We'll come to this at the end of the message. Let me mention them now. Because he said, there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Knowledge of God in the land. There's three things. This is what God is having his quarrel with us about. Or if you want to be historical, the quarrel he had with them. But those things, you remember the things that were written in Hosea were written for us to learn from. Remember, Paul wrote in Romans 15, he said, the things that were written aforetime, that would be Hosea, the things which were inspired and recorded, that God wanted us to, to gain conviction from. He said those things that happened then actually happened, and they're recorded for us to learn from. Are you with me? So it's not just Old Testament. It was an Old Testament experience, but it's given to us to be understood today as something we can learn from. 
not make the same mistakes. God hasn't changed. Times change, but God hasn't. He said the things that we learn from are to be things that prevent us from falling into the same error or subdued indifference as they did. But go on in verse 2, and he mentions this as being prevalent. This is the lifestyle of his people who obviously don't know him, who obviously aren't interested in his way, but they're connected with him by a story and by history, so maybe they assume they're all right because we're God's people or we're Jewish. Verse 2, he said, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. That means they just keep expanding it out and violence leads to more violence. How could that be? Is it possible that God's people could go downhill with so much truth? Well, the Bible's full of the history of that. They had great moments when they came up and God lifted them up and great revival type spirits among the people and sorrow and anguish and commitment. And then leave them alone a little while. Just let them go to church for a while but not learn anything. And they forget. That is the story of mankind from his creation. He is able to do and able to become and able to accomplish. But if you don't drive him, if you don't lean on him and keep promoting him and provoking him, all the stuff in this world will draw him away. But the devil, the God of this world, that's his job. That's what he does. I don't think it's strange that there's so much sin and awfulness in the world as I'm speaking. How could there not be? The world is full of people who do not know God. They know stories about God. They've heard all these things about God. Water to wine, walking on the water, the stone rolled away, and so forth. But they have no interest in knowing him. Because like Jesus said in John chapter 3, if you know him, you won't enjoy your sin anymore. And so man likes his sin, he likes his religion. So he finds somebody who will scratch his itching ears and make him feel better about his religious desires. And he's doomed. He's a doomed man. And if you tell him he's doomed, oh, you got a fight on your hands. Just like today, the hour we're in, as I'm standing here right now, I mentioned this Wednesday night. Religious persecution has begun in America. I don't profess to know all about the political situations in all these other states about religious freedoms. But I am learning this, that the world is so anti what's right. and wants no rules, no regulations, wants to be regarded as having rights, and be respected for those rights to do whatever you want to. Live with whoever you want to. And for any religious group, any Christian group to stand up and say, well, we think that's wrong. We shouldn't be obligated to. And boy, you're setting yourself up. But these are the days of the sifting of the church and judgment has begun. This is only the beginning. And a person who's not grounded well in the Lord will depart from the faith. In these days, I'm not a prophet. I've learned enough to know that. They will depart from the faith. Perilous times, as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy. Perilous times are coming. They've already come. The world's afraid now. We're afraid to say anything about terrorists because we're afraid they'll get us. We're afraid to say anything about Occult groups where we're afraid they'll do something to us too. Everybody seems to be afraid and wanting to respect anything. And if you begin to stand up with your convictions, it'll be required. Whether they drag you before the authorities and you have to make a confession or lose it all, whatever. You better get grounded. I mean, let me just say this all. You need to make sure you know what you believe. And make sure knowing what you believe that you can explain it. 
and that it's real and it's really you. Because we're all going to have to take stands. The government is going to point its finger at the church in this hour and say, if you don't accept this, and if you don't go along with this, we're going to take away your incorporated rights to deduct your giving from your taxes. And a lot of churches would fold up. See, we're not incorporated. So that doesn't have any effect. The government has nothing to say about what we must or must not do here to please them. We have nothing. But it started. I just want to throw that in. This has started. The hour has come. Darkness is beginning. Jesus said an hour would come when darkness comes and no man can work. So while there is light, take advantage of it. If there was ever a time you want to get grounded and settled and become steadfast in what you believe, it's now. Because we're looking at a story here in Hosea of people who had learned to take for granted spiritual things. Assuming on God that because I go to church, because I had a, an experience, and because I have good intentions, that I'm much too good to go to hell. You know, hell's for bad people. I'm not that bad. They've learned to think like that. That's become accepted. They're comfortable with that. And any kind of opposition to that or anything that would challenge that, people don't like that. But these people, he said, God has a controversy with you people. Again, look at what he said. He said, there is swearing and lying and killing. You know, the word swearing, I looked up the Hebrew word for swearing. In a sense, it has to do with saying what you don't mean or saying you'll do something and then not do it. But we get the list of that again in, in 2 Timothy 3. You know, men that can't be trusted, unthankful, unholy. And the list goes on about the traits of people in the last days. We're there. It's everywhere. You can't deny it. You read the Bible and you, you're reading the paper. If It's right there. Killing every day. Oh, there's more killing this year than ever before. People are mad. People are angry. A lot of people do drugs, and drugs make people like that because there's a spirit in drugs. And the spirit of the devil is killing. He comes to kill and to steal and destroy. It's all about death and doom and gloom and misery and grief and strife. We're living in that day. That's what the devil's doing. But he said, my people, they lie, they steal. Listen, folks, stealing, I can't tell you how bad a judgment comes on thieves. Zechariah 5 said this is the curse that has gone out through the whole world that lodges itself in the house of the thief, the one who steals. The one who doesn't want to work as God gave us to do, to earn his living or her living, but to steal, cheating, lying, taking advantage of other people, doing unto others before they do it unto you. These are some things that God said when these things happen to some degree, you know, maybe stealing in the church is just a little thing, a pencil, a pen. Maybe somebody's coat on the coat rack been hanging there for three weeks. I like that coat. It's mine now. Well, no, it isn't yours. You stole it. If it's not yours, it's not yours. First time I ever went to Virginia, Brother Guthrie's church, back when my hair was brown, I'm sure it was. I was in a little room. He had a little storefront thing there and had a curtain over his little tape room, which is a little something about like a stage and I went back there. I wanted to hear him sing a while. I wanted to just get ready, get my mind together. While I was back there with his tapes, I saw some rubber bands there, and I needed one, so I picked up one of them, and I put it in my pocket. So I was getting ready to go out, and I didn't hear voices, but I have impressions. And I had this impression. That rubber band is not yours. A rubber band. Well, he said, did you ask for it? No. That's what your kids answered. No. 
Well, then it's not yours, is it? And then he kind of, don't you throw that down like that. Let me ask you something. Is that overboard? Is that too much? It might have been for a lot of people who don't regard stealing and honesty like that so much. But if it's in your heart and it's ingrained in you, it is. You don't take things that don't belong to you. I'm going to go in here to McDonald's and get me a couple extra straws because I want to take them home to have them at home. They're not yours. Now, if you go ask them, can I have two extra straws? Yeah, then they're yours. Is it okay to be that narrow? It's okay for you. But anyway, (laughs) there is this idea in a lot of people that we don't have to be so narrow or so tight. And so when you give yourself a little room to do things that your conscience, just very little voice sometimes, that's not yours. You shouldn't do that. That wasn't true what you told him. You lied. That wasn't the truth. That wasn't the truth. And you say, it's not a big deal. But see, you give way to little bits and more comes. There's more waiting to make you out to be different than you were. Then one day you're sitting here listening to a sermon and it starts yakking on your head, P, or starts dealing with your life. And then of all things, instead of a repentance, there's a justification. God has a problem with that, if I might say it. God has a controversy with things of that sort. Look at verse 11. And I might add getting to verse 11. Does verse 3 say, therefore? Now listen to me. Because people are not lining up with the word or because a nation has rejected the word, therefore, this is what from God's side the world can expect. And if it talking to Christians here, this is what you can expect. Therefore, he said, shall the land mourn and be mad and angry and nothing works right. And everyone that dwells therein languish. Everyone that dwells therein languish. The word languish depicts the heart of those who are turning and pulling away because they have committed spiritual harlotry. You gave in a little bit and you kept doing it some more. And the next thing you know, you're not convicted so much by what you're doing anymore. You begin to sear your conscience. And you no longer have that remorse that you once had. It's just like nothing's fair, nothing's right, nothing goes right. And you begin to languish. Oh. And we sit around and talk about languishing. And all the media and the TV programs, the hour of languish. They're trying to solve problems. And they can't solve problems because they don't know God. For us, it's that simple. For the world, that's not acceptable. But it is acceptable. It's his world. He said, therefore shall the land mourn, therefore shall the land languish. Now, why? Go to verse 11. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. My people ask counsel at their stocks, and their staff declareth unto them, for the spirit of whoredoms has caused them to err, and they have gone a whoring from under their God. Now, I'm sure you will agree with me in a meeting like this that those are harsh words. There's nothing pleasant using the word whoredoms. It's probably more accurately translated spirit of harlotry. But that's not a very nice word either because it has to do with something that is basically unclean, something that is defiled. And you're living in a world in which the spirit of whoredoms is everywhere. The world is obsessed with whoredoms. It's everywhere. It's an unclean spirit. And it defiles everybody it has a chance to defile. When an unclean spirit enters into a person's life and begins to control that person's thoughts, 
acts and deeds. It opens the door to many other kinds of spirits. Things that will destroy you. Because every trait that a spirit causes, God must judge it. That's why God gave us deliverance. Did you know we have deliverance? Deliverance from the power of Satan. Deliverance from the effect of Satan. Deliverance. We can be set free from all that stuff. It's in the Bible. You teach it. In a course of 10 years, you'll probably get to it because there's so much to teach. But the problem is people that need deliverance don't pay attention to it. They learn to live with their situation. But that's demonic too. Because we're supposed to be set free. Jesus said, about knowledge, you shall know the truth. And what? The truth. The truth will make you free. There's power in the word that God sent forth that it doesn't return void and empty. It sends forth with power to do what he wants it done. Power. And yet, and yet, and yet, how much we take it for granted. Oh, I guess if he wants me to be free, woo, he'll just set me free. Well, he wants you free. But you're not going to get free sitting there with your arms folded. It takes faith. You must believe. You must act like you believe. You must live in anticipation that what you believe is going to happen. What things ever you desire when you pray, believe, so forth. But back to this verse, verse 11, he said, whoredom and wine, harlotry, the spirit, and wine take away the heart because that's the problem here is the heart. The devil has captured the control center of man's lives. He starts out maybe partying around, drinking a little of this, drinking a little of that. Meets a few people, gets in a different mood, an attitude, opens the door to this and starts doing that. Christians think they can drink when they want to, if, as much as they want to, it's no big deal. I have noted people that I have known through the years that don't have a problem with drinking. I have never seen any of them deeply spiritual. I'm not saying there's a problem with alcohol, but you got to walk away from some things. There's some things you got to get away from. So you think if I had me a, a Bud Dumber that I'm not going to be spiritual? I'm just saying you could drink a glass of tea as much as you could drink Bud Dumber. Couldn't you? Oh, but I like the smooth liquid gold as it flows down my pipes. You're deceived. I understand what you're saying. I've been there. But you know what? In this world that puts some kind of a premium on that and all the big events are advertised with alcoholic companies, I don't want any part of it. For no other reason than that. I'm not with y'all. I'm out. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't care how much I once enjoyed that. I don't need it. I will not allow myself to be controlled. <laughs> I, gotta have, I will not cave into that. So you see this witchcraft spirit, this spirit of whoredoms. It's the spirit behind what God's going to judge. What God has a controversy with, his quarrel and his argument with these people was because of the effect of a spirit of harlotry. Harlotry and whoredoms. Think of it like this. God brought us to himself to be his bride, okay? He wants a faithful bride, doesn't he? We don't belong to anybody else. There's nobody else we should show any loyalty to but our Lord. And everything out there in the world wants to pull at you and tug at you. Won't you try this? Won't you try this? Judgment always became God's people. I guess it always will when people, and the greatest complaint that I've found is reading through almost through the Old Testament now, but from Genesis all the way through is page after page chapter after chapter about 
judgment of God's people who turn from God to something else to be loyal to. Their loyalty, their time, their attention, their affections was not God. They added God to their life, but their attention and loyalty was to something else. My job, my career, money, going, being, doing. And they devote themselves to that. It became an idol. In the Old Testament, they simply begin to learn the customs of the heathens. These heathens had idols on the hills. They had groves, idols, and, and they would go in there and they would ask counsel from these sticks, these rocks that a craftsman made. There's your God. And they would bow to the thing or the golden calf in the days of Moses. People just want something like that, something different from having to sit and listen and listen to words. I want something that's more meish. <laughs> yeah. And boy, these little Moabites, Amorites, or the other side, the Hittites and the Jebusites, the Hivites, Canaanites, all the ites and ics and ticks had gods. They even had temple prostitutes. That was a part of worship. Well, no wonder they had a full house. I mean, this is what you, you, whoa, it's a spirit of whoredoms. And God said, when they draw you away from your loyalty to me and you go a whoring after other gods, that's what he said. And he said in verse 12, they've gone a whoring after other gods. I know that's ugly. I know that. But that's what happens. Chapter 7. Verse 8, Ephraim, he hath mixed or mingled himself among the people. You can't do that. We're just trying to show love. That's not love. Love is to God and God alone. And your only freedom is anything that wouldn't violate that. And if what you're about to do, what you're about to read... What you're about to watch, if it's going to suggest something besides what God is for, you got to say no. And the world can't say no. They can't turn off a bad program. They cannot not drink a bottle of something. They can't. Because the spirit of whoredoms, this being drug into the loyalty to entertainment of self in my way, you know, that's what you're serving. God says, I'm having a controversy. As it goes, all of this is going to be judged. If it doesn't change, a righteous God cannot allow unrighteousness in his presence. He says, you're going to be judged. Now, go back to chapter 4 and verse 1. He said, my people, hear the word of the Lord. There's a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Maybe you, maybe me. For three things. That's what I'm going to finish with today. Three things. He said the first thing is there's no truth. There's no truth. We will argue with that until it's dark out. Because everybody will say, look, I go to church. I have a Bible. I have even underlined my Bible. I paid a lot for it, but I still underlined in it. I take notes uh, sometimes. Hey, this is not school. This is church. Come on. I mean, we don't have to do that. But he said truth. He said there is no truth. Now, here's what that means by a commentator whose views I respect. He said this. He said there is no regard, no regard for known truth, no conscience, no sincerity, no upright, nor truth of words, no truth of promises, no truth in witnessing, no making good in deeds, what they say in words. You're not reliable. You're not trustworthy. You can't depend on you. Your word's not good because 
Uh, truth. You know what walk in truth means? To walk in truth means to walk in his light. That's what walking in truth is. And you and I both know you can't walk his way and continue to walk the way you are walking or the way you want to walk because the two will clash. There is a valley of decision. A lot of people are going to have to find where it is and go there. And just how serious are you about your Christian life? I'm not talking about going to church. You can go to church anywhere all the time. I'm talking about being a Christian, living on God's terms, which is what Christianity is. Doing that. Truth are divine, unchanging facts that confirm what God has said. That's what truth is. Pilate said, what is truth? Books have been written about truth. Christians asking the same question, what is truth? God's complaint here is controversy said there's no truth. The way people are living evidences, first thing you mentioned, evidences this, amongst you there's no truth. Nothing, nothing seems to have any effect on how you're living and what you're doing because there's an absence or a lack of truth. Would you put your finger right there and go to Isaiah 59? Go back to the left to Isaiah chapter 59. And look with me at verse 13 through 15. Isaiah 59, verse 13 through 15. I'm going to read verse 12 also. When realization hits, when you're confronted with him and your life and the rottenness in your life looms before you, here we go. Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and as for our iniquities, we know them. We can't hide that. Verse 13, in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, spreading oppression and revolt, Conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. And judgment is turned away backwards. And justice standeth afar off. For the truth, the truth is fallen in the street. And equity cannot enter. Truth. None of those things should have been, but there was no truth. In verse 15, yea, truth faileth. And he that departeth from evil... Today also maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. He had a controversy with that too, didn't he? He always does. Truth. There was no truth. Every man lived and did that which was right in his own eyes. And what was true for that man is what was in his heart, which he has a right to be his own self, doesn't he? I mean, who has a right to tell me what I have to believe? Truth has fallen in the streets. Truth. Look at the way he just describes things that are awful. But things we understand, we can understand that. And he said that happens when truth fails. Now, we know that God's truth doesn't fail, but it fails people. People let go of it. It no longer determines and guides their steps. Go back to Hosea. He said there's no mercy. Now, to me, mercy is a relational word. It's something between us. It has to do with relieving those that are suffering. You know, you get the word compassion. Another word for mercy is loving kindness. It has to do with how you relate to somebody else the way you should. We don't have time to go through all this, but the ways that the mercy of God is described for us and to us should cause us to go, wow, praise God. God is merciful to us. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to bring his mercy into our life. 
We don't deserve any of this. Our sins have separated between us and God. Justice is death, and we deserve death, and God is altogether right and fair when he says, have you sinned? You say, I have sinned. Then death is yours. Depart from me. He has a right to do that. He's done no wrong. And when men don't make it to heaven, it's because of sin. It's what separates between you and God. Those little sins you tolerate, the rubber band in your just little stuff. You start living, it's a lifestyle. And then he comes to this. He said, there's no mercy. There's no loving kindness. Everybody's out to do his own thing, have his own thing. We don't have time to do other things. What was it he said in the book of 1 John? He said, whoso hath this world's good. Remember that? Whoever has this world's stuff and he sees a brother in need. If he shuts up his heart of compassion from that brother, the question is raised in that verse. How does the love of God dwell in him? Because God as love is also God who is merciful. And James, I think it's James chapter 3, said, if we don't show mercy, we won't get mercy. If we're indifferent to other people, we'll find that God is indifferent to us. Mercy is that wonderful, wonderful expression of goodness and kindness, even faithfulness. It's God caring about me and you. It's God going out of his way to do kind and wonderful things for us when we know we deserve nothing. Was it Ezra who said, Lord, you haven't judged us near as much as you could? Oh, God, if you judge us for the total amount of what we owe, we, we're gone. And you haven't done that. You know why? Because God is merciful. You may get a ticket from the policeman for speeding. What's speeding today? 65, maybe 70. You were going 70.0001 miles an hour. And he had some kind of machine that could tell you that. He gives you a ticket. He said, I was only barely going over the speed limit. You're breaking the speed limit. What? <laughs> duh. He said, well, duh is enough. And then he wrote down and you got whatever the tickets cost today. Does anybody know what they cost? <laughs> Couldn't get you with that one, could I? So the guy's all upset. You know why he's mad? Because the preacher preached against what he believes. Come on, man. So he goes into the judge, and he's standing there in a good frame of mind. You know, he's hot. Why? Because he's guilty. But he doesn't think he's guilty enough. That's not enough guilt. So he's standing there with that piece of paper. And the judge says, next, he comes up there. And... But he doesn't do it like that. The judge, he changes his attitude. He said, <clears throat> yes, sir, I've got a ticket for speeding. And I was only barely speeding, Your Honor. Well, speeding is speeding, isn't it? Yes, sir. Well, then you're guilty, are you not? Yes, sir. Now, mercy says, I'm going to let you go this time. Or the policeman says, I'm going to let you go this time. That's mercy. You're guilty, but you've been set free. Somebody had mercy on you. But everybody in this room has been shown mercy by God. God's controversy is when we don't show mercy to each other. It's like forgiveness. In Matthew 18, a man was forgiven a lot, remember, and he wouldn't forgive another guy hardly anything. He wouldn't forgive. No, sir. And the Lord ended Matthew 18, towards the end of that chapter, he says, I showed great compassion to you. I had great compassion on you and forgave you all that debt. You should have gone out and done the same thing to others. If you remember what you've been forgiven of, you'll be more forgiving towards other people. Forgiveness, it's a part of your mercy package. 
we get cranked up sometimes about stuff and we want our way and we want our rights and so forth, but God is good to us. Can you find Deuteronomy 7? That's the fifth book. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Mercy, kindness, love for others. Listen to what God said. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn with your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondage from the king of Pharaoh and of Egypt. Why would he do that? Because God has a covenant. How many of you know that when God started to work in you, he is going to finish it? And look at, look at who he picked. I'm not going to say turn around and look who's behind you or beside you. Who did he pick to know that he was alive? Pharisees, Sadducees, important people, kings, prophets, fishermen, tax collectors. The ones that nobody had any interest in were the ones that Jesus showed himself alive on his resurrection. God cares about us, folks, and he loves us. Let me tell you something in getting to the third point. Because mercy is a relational word, it's, it's how we relate to each other. We must be merciful. He said, as you have done it unto the least of these, remember that verse? You cared about people, you did this, you cared about that group, you went there, you cared about that. I know some of these folks on these, some of these trips they gain nothing as far as any help or, in fact, they're behind when they get home. I mean, you're going to give. It's a life of giving to help people that wouldn't even know how to help you back. They can't, but that's not why you're there. You see suffering, you see squalor, you see this or that. When Jesus saw that, he began teaching. He had compassion on the people. He said, set them down and feed them. He said, we don't have anything to eat. He said, set them down. That's the way I would say it. He said, well, we only have a happy meal here. He said, bring it to me. He laid hands on it. He wanted to feed these people. He didn't want all these people that had been sitting there all day long, and I don't know how long it took to heal all of them, but they healed all of them. That might have taken four, five, or six, or eight hours, 15,000 people. He had no schedule. He wasn't trying to get out of there. He just, I mean, he was there for them. I am here for you. I came for you. I'll stay here all night if I have to because I, I came for you. And he healed them all, and they were all hungry, and they were weary, and he said, let's feed them. Remember the story. And they prayed over that, and the heart of God was expressed on that mountainside that day or that hillside, wherever they were. And there was an explosion of food. I mean, everybody had all they wanted to eat, and 12 basketfuls left over when it was over with. 12. You know why? That's how God cares about the little things, about having enough to eat, not being weary. That's how God cares about us. If that same spirit of God is in us, similar feelings come out of us for each other. We don't like to see you suffer. I don't. I don't like to see people have to... To be weary and down, I don't. There's not always something that I can do about it. And sometimes the things I would like to do, God might say, no, leave them alone. This is a trial. You have to be sensitive to the Lord. I pray at our table when we eat, my closing prayer is that God would heal everybody in this church of anything they're afflicted with or going through, everybody. When Jesus comes, there'll be no afflictions. The entire church, top to bottom, whatever that means, tallest to the shortest, all sickness would be gone. 
We've mastered it. We put it under our feet. We rule it. It doesn't rule us. It's a spirit of infirmity. If it's a spirit, we have authority over it. Amen. Amen. And finally, he said there's no knowledge of God. I'm not going to take that long, but this particular point is worth a couple of weeks, maybe a month, if you get into the attributes of God and knowing him, knowing all the different ways and sovereignty, all of those omnis, omniscient, om, you know, omnipotent, all that, and his solidariness. He needs nobody to be who he is. He needs nothing added to his life to be God. He did not create a world because he has a need, because he has no needs. He's God. You say, how can you understand him? You do your best. You do your best. He wants you to know him. He said in Zechariah, maybe chapter 9, he said, Let him that boasteth, boasteth about this, that he knows me and understands me. That's the man who has something to boast. I know who he is. Paul was able to say, I know in whom I have believed. Oh, I am so convinced. Paul also wrote in Philippians 3, he said, I gave up everything I have accomplished, studied for, everything I strove to get. I counted all but dung. You know what for? For the excellency of the knowledge of him. Just to know him, to be drawn into where he is, that secret place of the Most High, where it's just him and me in this solitary communion, and I come to listen and put my hand over my mouth and be swift to listen and to be still and to know. That's got to be a driving importance in our life. I want to know when I get up in the morning, I want to know who he is. I'm learning. It's been several years. I don't want to take that for granted and have that just some theological memorization and, you know, and pass the test if I was getting... I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about knowing somebody. I don't want to study Caleb's life. You know, this is your last Sunday to be single. Okay, so I don't want to study your life so I can tell people all about you. I want to know you. Yeah, a little, a little bit. Don't be hanging around my house. But anyway... To know. The word know is used so much in the Bible, I mean, in so many important ways. Like in Second Peter 1, all these great and wonderful promises are given to us through the knowledge of God. That we might be partakers of the divine nature through the knowledge of God. It's like his word. It's like God's words to us are like life. But then again, he says that too. He said, my words are life. Didn't he say that? My son, incline thine ear into my sayings. Let them not depart from your heart. He said to keep these words in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those that find them and health to all their flesh. Proverbs 4, 20 through 22. All through the Bible. You want to memorize things? Memorize things like that. So you have that instant recall. It's there. It's lodged in your mind. Words hidden in your heart, keeping you from doing wrong and being misled. Words about God, about who he is, and then the descriptions of God. When you begin to describe his majesty and the awesomeness I don't really like that word much either, but that's who he is. Created a world that was beyond human comprehension and put me on it. I mean, in it. And the universe is so big that when they try to map out all these significant planets, the earth is too little. It's just, it's, can't see it. You have to microscope it down there to find an earth. 
And then somewhere in the midst of all that is you. And before he created anything, he knew you. Amen. Amen. Oh, God. Who am I? Who are we that God would show us all of this? It is amazing who he is and what he does or even why he does it. But the knowledge of God. Go to verse 6. This is our closing verse. Verse 6. I am sure you're familiar with Hosea 4 and verse 6. I would certainly hope so. He said, my people, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Could it be that Knowledge has the effect that when God gives us words that are to be embedded in our heart and to control us and to guide us, could it be that when we don't have that experience, we will be destroyed, either now or in the end? Listen to me. You cannot live any way you want to and think, well, God will surely understand. That doesn't work. Listen to this. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Hey, Lord, I remember the stone rolled away, walking on the water, water to wine. Hey, I was there. No, you don't know me. You know stories that you've heard about me, but you don't know me. You never draw nigh to me and me drawn nigh to you so that you know who I am. You're just those religious people who run and do and get you some verses of Scripture and learn how to preach and get pretty good at it, I guess. Then you stand there at the end when the Lord's coming and say, Hey, Lord, it's us. And he said, I never, I never knew you. No, he meant by that word. We never had a true personal connection. You were busy. You don't get graded for being busy. When you're busy and you've only done what was commanded you, you're supposed to do that. You didn't fabricate that. That was in your heart. God gave you that. You don't get a reward for doing what you're supposed to. I mean, like that. You can't say, hey, look what I did. He said, I never knew you. Lord, we did this. Lord, look what we did. We were busy. We went and we did. And, and uh, Lord... He said, depart from me, what? <coughs> you workers of iniquity. Iniquity in the sense of self-serving. I never knew you. <coughs> that might be some of the hardest to deal with Scripture in Scripture. <coughs> because it implies there is a danger of thinking you're all right because you're busy or you've been here this long. And yet... If you don't even know who you're dealing with, then you're professing to be saved by a stranger. You don't know him. Because the effect of knowledge is humility. It'll humble you. It'll put you down. Oh, God. What did Job say? I've heard of you. Oh, Job 42. He said, Lord, I, I have opened my mouth and declared what I did not know. I was full of godly conceptions, perceptions, and ideas, and I thought they were good. Oh, now that you've appeared to me and you've spoken to me, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. All he could do was bow his head. He knew who he was dealing with. Just like that Pharisee said, I thank you, Lord, I'm not like him. And the publican just, all he could do was bow his head and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. What caused him to feel like that? Because of God. Only God can be like that. I don't deserve any of that. I'm not worth any of that. Oh, God, help me. He said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, there's two things I want to point out in that verse, and I'll close. He said, because thou hast, does it say rejected? And because, at the end of it, because thou hast forgotten. <coughs> Do you see those two things as the reasons for the problem here, he said, because thou hast rejected knowledge, 
What does he say? Because you have rejected what God has to say, he didn't want to hear it, don't go to church. I'm not interested in all of that. Because you have rejected knowledge, what does he say? What did he say, Duana? He said, I will reject you. Can that be? Boy, what do you do, though, with this concept of love? Would love reject? See, we've made love out to be something that God is obligated to be as we see it. God tells us, if a man loves me, he will keep my word. When we don't want to hear his word because the preacher preaches too long or it's, you know, we don't go to church to go to school. Whatever your problem is or whatever your statement is, you know, I'm not into church, whatever. You don't want anything that God has? You want to reject him? What does he say? That doesn't mean you fall dead and get sick and die. It just means that you have a lifeless life. You're living, but you're dead. You're busy, but you're going nowhere. Because you've already turned away from the only source of life there is, and that's God. And that life comes through his word. You turn away from that. You reject him. He rejects you. The word reject, the Hebrew word reject means to despise, to abhor, or to refuse. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want to go to church and listen to all that kind of stuff. But turn to Romans 1. You got to turn to thee. It wouldn't be church if we didn't do this. Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. In the list of character revelations of people in the last days, look at verse 28. I could start with verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That would be a lot of scientists. But anyway, the church today, I believe religion today, verse 25, has changed the truth of God into a lie, declaring the way God is when he really isn't. But people like God to be that way. That's that itching ears verse and being misled verse. And because they didn't want to preach God his way, verse 26 says God gave them up. He could do that. But verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, what does God give them over to? This is part of the rejection package. You reject his word, this is what you sign up for. You don't like to retain God in your knowledge. You don't like to have those kind of convictions where you can't go there, wear that, drink that, watch that, read that. You want all of that, but you know you can as a Christian, so you reject what God says in order to do it. He said God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, as you go back to Hosea, Keep your finger there and run past Hosea. Go down there to Proverbs. There's a little place down I want you to look at, a little shop that's got something for you, a little nugget of truth in Proverbs chapter 1. What do you call chocolate that's not sweet? The 87% dark chocolate. What do you call it? I like a piece of chocolate two or three times a week. But anyway, let me read for you Proverbs chapter 1 and verse Whew, this is tough too. Verse 28. And they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. Wow. They shall seek me early, but they won't find me. This is part of the rejection package. For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Verse 32. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them. Is that what it says? The last verse is good for you, though. The last verse says, but whoever hearkens unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. It's your choice. You live by choices. That's one you can make. A second thing he said in Hosea 4 and verse 6, because you have rejected me, I will also reject you. And what he said? 
Then he said, because you have forgotten what? The law of thy God. We've been talking about it. Because you have forgotten it. What did God say he would forget? Our children, didn't he? How awful would it be to bring a new little, cute, lovely little children into the world and everybody wants to hold them? When they get big enough, the little kids want to hold them and carry them around and by the head, you know. And they're so cute. Who does they look like? Oh, isn't that sweet? Wouldn't it be awful that something that started out so beautiful became something that was a monster? Nothing of God. Nothing. In their life. Nothing of God has any influence in their life. They have no vision. They have no revelation of God. They live as people that are exempt from any revelation of God. They run here, they run there, they do this, they do that. He said, where there is no revelation, no vision. He said, the people perish. The word perish means unrestrained. You know why they're unrestrained? Because there's no revelation of God in their heart. It wasn't in their parents, probably not their grandparents, and it's certainly not in them. And the educational system today tells you, listen, do what you feel like doing. If it feels good, do it. The church can't stop this. Church can't even hardly deal with it, so they try to allow them to do that somewhat, but hope they can refine it a little bit. What a monster age we're in. A generation of kids have been forgotten by God. Those cute little things that grow up because parents, because mom and dad had forgotten the word, God has forgotten their children. And the only hope is that somewhere down the line when those kids Maybe at the end of a long rope they're on, they realize they need help. And that merciful moment that God intervenes in their life and quickens them about their need to be forgiven, and he forgives them. That's all they got. No hope. Let me read it again. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you. You shall be no priest to me, seeing that you have forgotten the law of God. I will also forget your children. That's awful. My children. There's nothing of God there. The idea that God has no interest in my children because I had no interest in God. See how that settles on your heart today? But this was God's controversy. This didn't have to be. All these things that are described in Hosea didn't have to be. He said in chapter 6 and verse 6, the sacrifices of God. You're not talking about all these things that people dragged on. All he said, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. He said, I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I don't care about all your legal rightness in church and how you do this. He said, I'm interested in these other things. Oh, we're legal. Remember Jesus talked about this in Matthew 12. Remember when David was hungry, he and his men, they ate the showbread. They're not supposed to eat that. Remember that, he said? And the priest said, what are we going to do with that? And Jesus said, you should understand that part that said, I have mercy and not sacrifice. But he said, go and learn what that means, I guess. Well, here we are today. This is a day that we can say that in some way about something, God has spoken to us. Maybe this one that or that one this. Maybe somewhat about that over here and a little bit about this over there. But we've had a chance. We've had another meeting. We've been to another church meeting in our life. I got to preach another time. I'm in the same boat you're in now. What do we do with what we heard? We evaluated. How much of that applies to me? All of it. Okay, whoa. 
What am I going to do about it? Because the one thing I have that makes me special is a will. I live by my choices. I can walk out that door and go home and forget all this, or I can go out that door and say, oh, God, I, Lord, keep me straight. I don't want to perish. Maybe a father would say, I don't want my children to die. I don't want you to walk by my children and not even know they're there because you've forgotten them. Oh, God. You know, you said you did that because I've forgotten you. Lord, help me. Whatever I've done wrong, if there's time I can fix things or straighten things out, help me do that. Because I'll leave you with this last verse. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Forget it not. Get wisdom, get understanding. Forget it not. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. That came from the book of Proverbs. It's your choice. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to thank you this morning, Lord, for your word. I want to thank you for your goodness, all the promises you've made. They're ours. We're not serving you because of benefits, Lord. We're serving you because we love you. There are great needs in our lives. We need to deal with things. I just ask that there's a heart in everybody here, an honorable heart, to be willing to admit that you are altogether right and we are altogether wrong when we're different and that we will deal with our lives. I thank you, dear God, today for, for the fact that Jesus is alive, that he still lives, and that he is coming back. May he come back for people that are made ready for him and a people who are believing. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you've been born again, you're a Christian, you know you have. You've had that moment in time where you were born again. When the communion comes around, you receive the bread and the cup. For this is the offering that Jesus gave to you. He said, this is my body. This is my blood. Not his actual body as a piece of bread or his actual blood as the fruit of the vine, the grapes. But they represent that. Something that happened a long time ago in an upper room in Israel. We're remembering at this morning. Not his birth. Not a manger scene and all of that. But he said, as often as you do this, you show forth his death until he comes, which means he is alive. You have much to be thankful for. Think about it. Determine this week. If it comes up, pray for it. God to give you a chance to show some compassion to somebody, especially somebody that can't help you back. Amen? Now greet somebody and say, I am blessed and you're free to go. God bless all of you. Amen. <laughs>